Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our Easter series, It's Purpose and Promise, with a message titled, Jesus, Thy Blood and Righteousness. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It has sometimes been said, you know, you Christians seem to say so much about the atonement that comes from the cross. It's all about the cross. So then why didn't Jesus just drop down from heaven at the age of 33 or 35, you know, as as a man and go directly to the cross and then be done with it? By emphasizing the cross as much as you do, aren't you taking away from all the other things that Jesus did, including, you know, his ethical teaching, his evident love, even for his enemies, you know, his miracles, his compassion on the suffering. Why can't Jesus be the great healer and the great deliverer from evil spirits? Why can't we see in Jesus a command to care for the poor and to live more simply ourselves? Why this inordinate amount of focus on the cross? Well, to be truthful, Christians do talk about and study and apply Christ's moral teaching to our lives. We do urge and command all Christians to forgive their enemies and not to seek revenge, and we do pray for and anticipate healing, and we do believe all of the things that Jesus taught us to do. But we do believe what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. See, the cross of Jesus is a matter of first importance. Yep, all the other aspects of Jesus' life are important, but this, our Savior bleeding and dying on the cross, is of first importance. If we do not stress this of first importance, we are in fact denying the good news of Jesus. It's it's either the cross of Jesus as the most important thing, or we're not faithful to Jesus at all. It's as simple as that. But when we think of the cross, or as I've stated yesterday, as the atonement, that is, Jesus' offering as a substitute for our sins, it's not as if we divorce this matter from the rest of his life. So let me start by saying that historically, Christian Bible teachers and theologians sometimes, when, when speaking about the atonement, think of it in regard to two aspects. And so we sometimes hear first, of Christ's active obedience, and then second, of his passive obedience to the Father. And both of these are thought of as a part of the atonement. Let me explain. Jesus' active obedience to his Father refers to the truth that Jesus obeyed all the requirements of the law and that he perfectly obeyed the Father. He never sinned. He never missed the mark. He never allowed other considerations to overshadow his role as the man who obeyed God perfectly. He perfectly kept all the law of God. Now, that's not only true, but it's also important to consider at Easter time. And why is that? Well, for one, as we saw yesterday, the book of Leviticus never allowed a sacrifice to be presented before God unless that sacrifice were completely free from every blemish. Had Christ even for one moment slipped up, failed the command of God, he would have been rendered unclean, and he would have been an unacceptable sacrifice before the Father. His perfect record makes him the acceptable atonement. That's why it was important for Jesus to care for the poor and to be free from lust, to take a stand against the demons and to resist Satan at every point. That's why it was important for Jesus not only to teach the truth, but to live by the truth at each moment. 
He is the unblemished lamb that was offered up to God. He is the only human being that did not deserve death, and yet he willingly offered himself in obedience to God. That's why this has often been called Jesus' act of obedience. But there's another important truth behind the sinless life of Jesus. And and just to warn you, you're going to have to put on your thinking cap. I, I mean, stay with me. Think about this. You know, heaven has to be earned. I know that all of us have heard the saying, you can't earn your way to heaven. And I, that's true. And the reason that's true is not because heaven can't be earned. It's because a sinner has fallen short, but he has not. So listen to the words of Philippians 3 verse 9. And here, Paul speaks of having been found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, I know that's a mouthful, but for our purposes, allow me to zero in on one very important aspect of what Paul has just said. Paul is not saying that, what with the atonement of Jesus, I'm now forgiven and I've gotten back to innocence. No, no, he says what he needs is positive moral righteousness, a righteousness that God accepts. Now compare this to Romans 5 verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. I I hope you heard that. Paul is saying that Christ's sinless life, his perfect track record of obedience is an atonement. His perfect life is an offering that is presented to God. Please don't miss this. Paul has said that we, we believers in Jesus, are made righteous by the obedience of Jesus. His perfect life earns our way into heaven. Don't you see? If all that happened is that our sins were forgiven— You still wouldn't have earned your way to heaven. But Jesus, in his perfect life, earned heaven on your behalf. That's why Paul said that he did not have a righteousness of his own. No, no. He had the righteousness of Jesus, which was credited to Paul's account by faith. This is a part of Christ's work that has been almost entirely missed in today's Christian world. But it was actively taught in times past. Some of you who are older might remember a hymn. We used to sing it in church. It was a hymn written by Count Zinzendorf. It's a wonderful German saint who who led the way to one of the great revivals in church history. And Zinzendorf wrote these words in 1739, and then later it was Charles Wesley who translated those words from German into English. So let me quote to you the first line of that beautiful hymn. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness— My beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Did you notice it? In the midst of a flaming world, one that is destined to be destroyed by fire. I, wrote Zinzendorf, will lift my head before the judgment of God with great joy. For on that day I will be dressed not in only one piece of clothing, but in two. One is the blood of Jesus, and yes, that is the part of the atonement that most Christians are familiar with today. It has, however, disappointingly been hidden from us that we are also dressed in Christ's righteousness. Jesus was consciously aware of this as he lived his life. You might remember the moment when he joined that long line of people who were being baptized by John. 
And when he gets to the front of the line where John is supposed to baptize Jesus, well, John is shocked. He says, I should be baptized by you. He says it in horror. I'm unworthy to baptize you. To which Jesus responds, and I'm quoting here from Matthew 3.15, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, every action of Jesus fulfilled or brought to the full the righteousness of God, displayed in his obedience. When Jesus went to the cross, he went there as the spotless lamb who in the 30 to 35 years of his life had at that moment brought to the full the righteous life that God requires. That's why the righteous life of Jesus interests us so much. We know from studying his life what is the righteous life that God requires. But to that truth, we add another very important truth. I mean, ask yourself this question. When you stand before God and you must give an account, whose record of obedience do you want to present before the Father? Your own record or the record of Jesus? Which one do you want to speak on your behalf? See, the sad truth is that there are a great many of people who say, you know, I have done my best and that's all God could ask of me. Well, you're wrong. God could actually ask a lot more than you can produce. But whenever I hear someone talk that way, I'm reminded that they're going to stand before God and present their own record. But those who look to the life of Jesus as an atonement will say, when I stand before God and he says, what do you present to me? I will point to Jesus and I will say, I present him. I present before your throne his righteous life lived on my behalf. Now, one more important point of application, and it has become very popular for Christians in our day to present themselves as Christ followers. Look, I know why they do that. They're, they're trying to say that it's their desire to be obedient to Christ, and, and that's very good. Christ demands it of us. But there's something about that phrase that still troubles me. It's this. Just how good of a Christ follower do you need to be? You see, for there is no one who does not sin. And if you are counting on your record of following Christ to count on the day of judgment, well, I promise you, you've not fulfilled all righteousness. Don't you see that in the end, the greatest thing that we can say about Jesus is not that we emulate him or that we follow him. Now, we do do that. But the greatest thing that we can say is that in every situation, it is that Jesus lived died for us. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board. Martin Luther, I think, 
coined the term alien righteousness. He meant by that that the righteousness of God is given to every believer through faith. He called it alien because it didn't mean it came from outer space, but rather he said it came from another, not, not from ourselves. And he loved to quote 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, each of these commodities, which are fully displayed in the life of Jesus, are now applied to the record of the believer. In Christ Jesus, we are righteous. See, all we need to do is consider Paul's words in Philippians 3 verse 9. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So that's the first half of the equation. That's the first half of the atonement. The righteous life of Jesus is applied to each man or woman who believes in Jesus. On the day of judgment, God will look at the righteous life of Jesus and judge the believer on that basis. And that's a beautiful and marvelous truth. But of course, there is a second half to the good news, and that's not only that Jesus lived for us, but he died for us. You might remember that I said some Bible teachers refer to this as the active and then the passive obedience of Christ. See, on the one hand, Jesus actively obeyed the Father, but then on the other hand, Jesus passively submitted his own will to the will of the Father and died on the cross. Now, we find that, of course, in one of the most famous passages in our Bible, Philippians 2, verse 9. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We can talk about this as passive, not because it required no effort. It did. But rather because it is a submission unto death. And here again, as before, when we consider Christ's act of obedience, it might be helpful to look back and think how this began to take shape long before Jesus ever went to the cross. See, we often think of Passion Week, which is, of course, the last week of Jesus' life, before the cross as a time, you know, of agony finally culminating in the crucifixion. But in truth, Jesus suffered for the whole of his life. When Isaiah the prophet predicted the coming of Christ, he calls the Messiah a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. That is to say, Jesus was so familiar with suffering that we might say he was on intimate terms with suffering. That is, his suffering is the defining feature of his life. I've got to say this because we live in a day in which it has become quite popular, you know, to speak about the humor of Jesus. And at times, I've even heard preachers say the most outrageous things in this regard. They imagine Jesus pushing one of the disciples into the Jordan and everyone just laughs. And then they imagine that when he said that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven, well, that was a real knee slapper, at least so they think. Now, please know that when you hear this kind of a description of Jesus, it's really not based on a serious Bible study. It's based on what our culture thinks is endearing in human beings. Jesus, in this way of thinking, is then smiling and laughing and full of giggles, and right until the time when they nail him to a cross, and suddenly everything changes. It's silly to think this is the way things were, for the actual historical record of Jesus' life reveals the very opposite picture. Stop and think for a moment about the temptation in the wilderness at the very outset of his public ministry. It's recorded in Matthew 4, 1 to 11. He just spent 40 days in prayer and fasting, and at the end of that time, the tempter comes to him. Use your power on yourself and make these stones into bread. 
Demonstrate your power by jumping off the highest spot of the temple and then showcase how the angels will bear you up. Forego the way of suffering in the cross and fall down and worship me, and I will give you all the worldly power that's available. At the end of that text, Matthew simply says that after Jesus had successfully endured this temptation, that the devil left him for a more opportune time. And this is interesting to me. You know, I do know that it's far harder to resist temptation than to give in to it. I mean, try it and you're going to know what I'm talking about. So let's say you're angry with someone and you just want to punch them right in the mouth. Well, the minute you do that, well, then the temptation is gone. It's lanced, much like a boil. The pressure is off. And even though you might feel guilt for what you've done, you feel relieved nonetheless. But imagine you never give in. The temptation simply grows until the pressure is almost unbearable. Well, Jesus knew this in a way that you and I never can because in each moment he resisted temptation and suffered under such enormous pressure every single moment of his life. If you ever want more evidence of Jesus' sorrow, let me take you to Hebrews 5 verse 8. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, that idea that Jesus learned obedience is shocking to some. But I think the passage means that he had to learn through experience how utterly painful it is to obey, even when obedience means that you'll experience negative consequences. I think of how gratifying it would have been for Jesus to have called for a legion of angels to rescue him from the cross. Now, he would have at that moment been able to not only forego the pain of crucifixion, he would have demonstrated to his enemies that he really was who he said he was. I mean, how painful was the passive obedience of Jesus? Now, it's not just there. It was in his humility when his enemies mocked him, when the crowds deserted him, when the Pharisees condemned him as an imposter and an evil man. And in each instant, Jesus chose obedience. And in each act of obedience all through his life, the intensity of his suffering only grew larger. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews mentions when he says in Hebrews 12 verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That is, learn from him and how he responded to such open hostility from, from the super spiritual and yet demonic religious leaders of his day. But there are other moments that invite us to consider the sorrows of our Lord. John eleven thirty five 35 tells us that Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus and wept. I know it's the shortest verse in the Bible, and yet it is powerful. Even though he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, it seems logical to believe that, that his whole life of fighting the demonic and the sins of men and the wretched condition of human suffering, all of that now culminates at the tomb of his friend. And before he raises him, he's overcome with emotion and weeps. It's for all of those reasons that we can see that the cross is the culmination of the sorrows of our Lord. At the cross, all the sorrows are gathered up into one amazing and compacted moment as the sorrows of our Lord now climax into a moment of unbridled agony. I think it is possible to view the agonies of our Lord from three different vantage points. You know, we might consider it from the standpoint of physical pain that Jesus endured. After beaten, he was nailed to a cross while his enemies mocked him and uttered insults. That's a matter that he endured. A second vantage point is the pain that he bore as our sin-bearer as he did what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, he bore the sin of many. Or we might consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, I do know this. The more we grow in holiness, the more we feel a deep revulsion for sin. Imagine now the one who is altogether holy. What a horror it was for the sins of the world to be laid onto our Lord. How he must have suffered under such a revulsion. But I've still not touched on a third issue from Jesus' own words on the cross. He says he was forsaken by God. And I've not yet touched on the word propitiation, a word that's so filled with horror that when we think of it, we instinctively feel that we must turn our faces. But all of that brings us back to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is the heart of the message of the cross. You know, some have called this heart of the cross the good news of the great exchange. On the one hand, Christ exchanged his righteousness to us, and we became righteous. And on the other hand, we exchanged our blackened hearts for his on the cross. We got his righteousness, and he got our sins. That seems like a bad deal, but for us, what an amazing deal. And my friend is the great exchange. And that's why we sing, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these array, with joy shall I lift up my head. John, your message was entitled, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. Now there's two things going on here, and, and we've talked about this a little bit before. And really, people don't talk about this much, but the blood is the death. The righteousness is how Christ lived for us. Can you help help us understand that a little bit more? Because I don't think this is talked about a lot. Yeah, well, let's talk about that even, that it isn't talked about. I think many people are surprised to hear this. And uh, it's part of what has been called a great exchange. Uh, The great exchange is that, you know, uh, Christ exchanged his righteous life for us. So he gave us his righteousness. We, on the other hand, gave Christ our sin. And uh, that's, that's a great deal for us. I don't know how it is, you know, for Christ. Uh, but, of course, he uh, gloried in that. That was the Father's purpose for him. But getting back to the question that you ask, why is it that we have not been preaching this? You know, Ben, to some extent, I think many people are surprised to even hear it. You know, Romans 5, by one man's obedience, many are made righteous. So, we should be examining with great interest the obedience of Jesus, following it through and recognizing this is what will be presented before the Father in the final day. All of this will count for me. It's a wonderful truth. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our Easter series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. In the month of June, Dr. Neufeld and a team from Back to the Bible Canada will be traveling to India to join the ministry team of Back to the Bible India to conduct two Bible teaching conferences in both Delhi and Hyderabad. These conferences will attract hundreds of pastors from these regions from multiple denominations in search of excellence in the instruction of expositional Bible teaching and to spend time in worship, fellowship, and offer encouragement amidst challenging and difficult circumstances of ministry. Perhaps this is a ministry venture you'd want to invest in. Your gift towards Back to the Bible Canada's international ministries would mean so much in support of this conference 
the development and encouragement of pastors in these regions and the airing of ongoing Bible teaching programs in Asia. To offer your support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.